Just southwest of downtown St. Paul, Pike Island is situated at the confluence of the Minnesota and the Mississippi rivers. Fort Snelling, constructed 33 years before Minnesota even became a state, is perched on a bluff overlooking this important confluence. So at Pike Island, two distinct sources of water join to constitute a single flow of water. Is that really true? Let's say that you take a group of children on a uh, field trip to Pike Island to see the confluence of these two rivers. And the, as the kids get talking among themselves, they reason that one of the rivers must actually stop right here. And they ask you which one it is. Is it the Minnesota River or is it the Mississippi River? We, we know as it continues on, it must be that the Minnesota stops right here. Is that right? You say, well, it doesn't exactly work like that. Let me explain it this way. If you could turn the Minnesota River red and you could turn the Mississippi River blue, the water that's right out here in front of us would be purple. As the red and the blue combine, it would be the color purple. And so it is with the relationship between the sovereign purposes of God and the free choices of human beings in this world. If God's sovereign purposes in this world are red and human free will is blue, the fatalists would argue that the river of history is red. Where God and His sovereign purposes takes over, human responsibility stops. Those who would believe in what is called libertarian freedom, that is that God stops at the place of human free will, they would say that the river is blue. In this sense, the Bible teaches that the river of history is purple. Don't make more of that than you should. There's no significance to the colors, just an illustration here. But the source of history, the flow of history, is a combined color. Before demonstrating this assertion from Scripture, let's set the important question that we're asking here in the larger context of our studies in divine providence. As we labor to know God for who He truly is, as we come to understand His work in this world, coming to understand the nature of His continuing influence over nature and over human beings and in all that takes place, as we understand that, we come first to understand that God is Creator and Sustainer of all things. We have noticed as we've looked at God's influence upon the world, just by way of review, God's originating work of creation. Colossians 1 and verse 16, Jesus by Him, all things were created in heaven and in earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. Having created the universe, God did not go on vacation. He did not leave. But His influence continues in a pervasive way. We have then the continuing work that we call providence broken down into providence as preservation and providence as governance. That is, He holds the world together, preserving it, and He governs it. As we look then at the definition of what we mean by providence, providence is that never-ceasing work of God by which He as Creator and Sustainer preserves in existence all creation according to its original design. That is, He brings the world into being and then He preserves it. We move then to that second concept of His governance, of His direction. With absolute sovereign rule, He governs its every moment, free act, and circumstance to the purpose for which He brought the universe into being for the glory of His name and the ultimate good of His people. As we narrow in on the first half of that somewhat complicated definition, we look at providence, first of all, as preservation. And we noted that the Scriptures teach in numerous places 
that God preserves the universe on a grand scale. Going back to Colossians 1, verse 17 says that in Christ all things hold together. They cohere in Christ. Everything is held together by the Creator. It is preserved. Should God let go His hand upon this universe for one second, it would fly apart into chaos. But He who brought it into being on a grand scale preserves all that is. But we see that providence's preservation works on a narrow scale as well. Jesus said in Matthew 6, of the birds of the air, your heavenly Father feeds them. In chapter 10, not one of them falls to the earth apart from your Father in heaven. Psalm 104, He makes the grass grow. So on a grand scale, as well as on a narrow scale, there is not a single atom, there is not a single piece or part of this created universe that is not preserved by God. He holds it together. But we move then to that second aspect of His providence, His governing providence. Not only does He hold the world together by the word of His power, but He actually leads that world in the direction, steers it in the direction for which He has designed it. God continually, freely exerting His influence so as to steer the created order and the course of history to the final destination for which He created all things in accordance with His eternal purposes. Well, again, we ask the question, how large, how small? What is the reach of this governance? First, what is its basis? As we've noted in weeks past, the basis on what authority, what motivation does God draw on to govern the universe? Job 42 says, no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Isaiah 14, as I have planned, so shall it be. As I have purposed, so shall it stand. For the Lord of hosts has purposed. And who will annul it? Who will stop Him? No one. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Lamentation 3, who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? Daniel 4, He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stay His hand. No one can stop what God does, what He chooses, what He purposes as He steers this world. Or as Ephesians 1 puts it so well, He works all things according to the counsel of His will. So the basis of His governing providence is His will, His decree. We see the reach of His decree. How far does it go? Does it just deal with the big things? Does it just deal with the small things? Does it aim somewhere in the middle? The reach of God's governing providence is over every aspect of the natural realm. Psalm 135, whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from His storehouses. Let me remind you, this is the God who created the universe. He knows exactly how it runs. He knows all of its laws. He knows how He brought it into being. And He says, I make the rain clouds. He's not ignorant of science. He wrote science. But He says, I'm involved in everything. I govern the storm. I cause the grass to grow. I feed the birds. Again, we see... It is over every aspect of natural realm. From pole to pole of human experience, His providence extends as well. Just again, quoting one verse, 1 Samuel 2, 6 and 7. Two verses here, The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol. He brings to death and He raises up. The Lord makes poor and He makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. From pole to pole of human existence, The Bible proclaims again that God is steering and directing the course of history. His providence extends then down to the infinitesimal twists and turns of what we call chance. The Bible uses the word chance simply because we have no other way to express those things that seem to have no purpose. But when we get down to those things, God says, Proverbs 16, the lot is cast into the lap 
but it's every decision is from the Lord. To paraphrase, the flip of a coin is determined by the will of God. This is the Bible's message. And it begins to raise questions. What is the method of God's governing providence? How does this work, particularly as you put the sovereign will of God, who is directing and steering all things, ordaining everything that comes to pass, and put it with the free will of man? How do we bring those two things together? If God ordains all that comes to pass, if He continually and freely steers the course of history to the purpose for which He created all things, then is the river of history red? That is, we are pre-programmed robots. We are pawns on the playing board of history that God just moves around. We have no free will. We are really making no choices. We don't realize it, but we are just being moved around on the board. Or is the flow of history blue? That is, God restricts His providence from entering the realm of free choice. God stands back and says, I'll have nothing to do with the free choices of human beings. I will grant to them that freedom and I will have nothing to do with it. As I've said, I believe that the Bible teaches that the stream is purple. That human beings are acting with freedom of will and choice as God is acting with absolute sovereignty over all that comes to pass. It's both and, not one or the other. One of the least cluttered passages that does not get into the whole realm of sinful choices, which we will head there by God's grace down the road. But one of the most uncluttered passages is 1 Samuel chapter 9. I invite you to turn there as we labor through this, these two chapters, 1 Samuel 9 and part of chapter 10. Now, as we move to this passage, let's set it in its context. We have been singing in some sense of its context. As the Bible unfolds, God's salvation plan includes His election of Israel, His holy nation, through whom He will mediate His grace to the nations. One of the ways that He brings His grace to the nations, and we gather here as representatives of those nations who have come to faith in Christ, one of the ways that God purposes to save is to raise up a dynasty of kings in Israel, His chosen nation. And from that dynasty of kings will come the final king, the great king, who will save his people from the curse. As we come to 1 Samuel 9, Samuel has almost single-handedly preserved Israel from moral ruin and has pointed the nation back to God as a prophet and as her final judge in the governance of Israel. But Israel has grown weary of having to trust God for victory over her enemies and begins to clamor for the protection of a king. We want a tall man. We want a good-looking man. We want a strong warrior. We want to rest in a king like the other nations do that will lead us into battle and will give us pride as a nation. Israel has no intention of honoring God's plan to raise up a dynasty of kings that will lead to the ultimate king. Yet even here, right at the start of this passage, we see the confluence of man's desires. We want to be like everyone else. We want to be proud. We want a king that will do us proud. And we, that's what we desire. We want it. We, we lust for it. And God's purposes to bring about a king of His choosing. The two streams are flowing together as we enter into this narrative. Israel's lust for a king, God's sovereign purpose to raise up Messiah through a kingly line in Israel merge here. So God permits Israel to have a king according to her stipulations, yet is moving to establish King David, whose dynasty will give rise to a king like no other, David's greater son, Jesus Christ, of whom we have been singing of his royalty this morning. So as we come to 1 Samuel 9, Israel is a federation of loosely organized tribes, each having a tenuous hold upon the territories that have been allotted to them in the promised land. But God will use Samuel here to transition Israel into monarchy. The rule of a king. Chapter 9, verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin 
whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bekorath, son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. The Hebrew word Gibor, a man of power, a man of influence. And they would almost always have wealth. Verse 2, And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward he was taller than any of the people. Saul had the potential, as one has put it, to be every inch a king. We're introduced to him here. As Israel longs for a king, and God longs ultimately for his king. Now, verse 3, concerning this Saul, the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and rise and go and look for the donkeys. So ironically, while Israel is desperately searching for a king, their future king is desperately searching for some lost donkeys. Verse 4, he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. They're kind of making a circuitous route. They passed then through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. And then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them there. They've been gone a while. A lot of looking, and they find nothing. When, verse 5, they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But his servant says to Saul, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in high honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. A reference to Samuel. Hard to imagine Saul having no knowledge of Samuel, but that appears to be the case here in another verse through the text. Saul was apparently too occupied with family business to care much about God's business. Then Saul said to his servant, verse 7, he's got another objection here, but if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have with us? We have nothing to give him. That was custom in the day. Was You would give this seer who is helping you something as a gift I wouldn't be caught dead going to the seer without something in hand, Saul is saying. But the servant answered Saul again, verse 8, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Here's again an irony. The future king is apparently penniless, and his servant has to given the money. Maybe he asked them to remember this as a loan and to pay him back. I don't know. It's a sort of a strange situation, but here the servant has some money left. They're not aware of that. They have no bread. They've been going for a long time. And he says, but I do have some money here. I'll take it. Let's go. Now formally, footnote verse 9, in Israel when a man went to inquire of God, he said, come let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formally called a seer. A prophet, the office of prophet, really is simultaneously begun with the coming of the monarchy and the king. The prophets had their work to do until the kingdom ended and Israel was taken into bondage, into Babylon, deported there. But at this point in time, before the kingdom, they were called a seer. What is now known, he says to his writers, as a prophet. And Saul said to his servant, well said, good idea. Come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. Samuel's hometown undoubtedly of Ramah, which means height. And as they went up the hill to the city, Ramah, the hill, the height, they met young women coming down out to draw water. So the cities were often set up on a hill for protection purposes, but that doesn't, that's not a very good place to dig a well. So the well would be outside the town. And these women are coming down, descending, and coming to get water. And he says, is the seer here? Is he home? Is he in town? 
They answered, verse 12, He is. Behold, He's just ahead of you. Hurry! He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find Him before He goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till He comes, since He must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up and you will meet Him immediately. So there's a, a, a time of worship, a time of fellowship here, and this seer will come, this prophet will come to bless. And if you hurry, you'll have time to catch him. High place, open air sanctuary, often used for idolatrous worship, but apparently here used for the worship of God. And so they begin to ascend the hill and see if they can find Samuel. Now, I'd like to call a time out here for us to stop the narrative right here and to ask ourselves some questions. At any place in this narrative, have you been led to believe that the people involved are pawns being moved around the board by God? That God's will is a force like someone taking our arm, twisting it behind our back, and making us go the direction that He wants us to go where we really don't want to. Or maybe we're not even aware, but they're just being moved around by God. Do we get any sense of that here? Anyone reading this narrative at face value would realize that there's some lost donkeys. And these guys are looking for lost donkeys and they're doing everything that they can to find the crazy things. They can't find them. They're going over hill and dale and they are working out schemes to try to figure it out. And I'm afraid of, my father's probably worried about us now. We really need to head home. But what about this? Well, we don't have money. I've got money. Let's go find him. Is he here? Yeah, he's here in town. God is not pushing people around on a board here. These are people acting in daily life like any one of us would act in daily life, freely choosing what they're doing. But at verse 15, God allows us to stand behind the scene. He pulls a curtain back and allows us to look in to the mind of God on some level. And so we read in verse 15 that now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, now hold on for just one second, the word revealed, the Hebrew word is actually he uncovered his ear. The beautiful idea. He uncovered his ear. It's as if God is whispering into Samuel's ear what is in God's notebook. What God sees and what God knows. He uncovers the ear of Samuel and whispers this wisdom to him. Verse 16, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin. And you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. God does not like what Israel is doing in their lust for a king. But God does know that it is becoming time for a king to come and deliver his people. And he has his king already chosen. Did you notice what that text said? I will send you a man tomorrow. He's not going to die of a heart attack. He's not going to decide that even though there is money to go see the seer, he wants to get home. Everything that we have seen in the text is Saul is looking for lost donkeys and he is acting with his best wisdom under the circumstances to do what he wants to do. But God can say of this man, I will send him to you tomorrow. We see the confluence of divine and human will. Verse 17, When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people, that is, rule my people, deal 
as a mediator between God and man to restrain their sin and to enforce God's law. This is the one that I sent. Verse 18, Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? He's going to be surprised to find out this is the seer. He's going to be even more surprised at what this prophet says. Verse 19, Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. Saul wasn't counting on that. Nor on this, verse 20, And as for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? You lost your donkeys three days ago. They have been found. Don't worry about them. And all of the desire of Israel rests on you. What? Where did that come from? He had to be stunned by such a statement. So he answers, verse 21, Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribes of Benjamin? Probably just a nice, polite way of saying, I'm nobody. You must have me mistaken with somebody else. Why have you spoken to me in this way? All the desire of Israel is on me? Then Samuel took Saul, verse 22, and his young man and brought them into the hall, the place of eating, and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited who were about 30 persons. Seats them at the place according to protocol of honor. And Samuel says to the cook, bring the portion I gave you of which I said to you put it aside. And the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set that before Saul. And Samuel said, see what was kept is set before you. Eat because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests, eat with those here invited. So he's seated at a place of honor. He served the portion of meat that probably would have been reserved for Samuel himself as the seer and the chief participant in the meal. And I'm sure that Saul is really blinking here. He has been over hill and dale for several days looking for these lost donkeys. He's probably not in the greatest of shape, and he apparently is penniless, and now he finds himself feasting like royalty with this great seer who says that all of Israel's desire is on his head. He is not ordering these circumstances. He didn't want to lose his donkeys. He wanted to head home. He found this seer. Now he's finding himself in a very strange place. He eats with Samuel that day. Verse 25, And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Probably the first good night of sleep he's had for a bit, because on the roof, on their flat-roofed homes, this was a place of security from wild animals. We don't know where he slept, but but here he's, it's a very normal way to sleep on the roof of the home for a guest to sleep on the roof of the home. And then at the break of dawn, verse 26, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. And as they were going out to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the Word of God. This is between you and me. Private conversation. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head, and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over His people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over His heritage. Let's stop there for just a moment. Samuel acts as God's agent to serve the purposes of God, anointing Saul as the king. This anointing would indicate the Holy Spirit has empowered the head of the theocracy 
And the significance is that to this point in Israel's history, the only people who were anointed were the priests. Now, as the monarchy begins, this king is anointed. Not revealed yet to Israel, but he's anointed king. God has chosen Saul. And so, in some sense, he is now on a par with the priesthood in the service of God, in behalf of his kingdom. Having anointed Saul, Samuel authenticates his authority to act as God's agent by proving that God has commissioned him to do this. And so he says there at the end of verse 1, this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince, that I know what I'm doing, that this is not a joke. Sign 1, verse 2, when you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah, and they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Two men, specific location, with a specific message. A message Saul could have figured out perhaps on his own. He said earlier, I'm afraid my father's going to be missing me. He didn't know the donkeys were found outside of what Samuel had already revealed to him. But two men, not three, not four, not one, two men at a specific place with a specific message. Sign number one. Sign number two, here is how we can confirm, Saul, that God has sent me to anoint you. Verse 3, Then you shall go on from there further and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. Three men will meet Him at a specific location, each loaded down with a specific food item. And we feel a little sorry for the guy with the three goats. Got a pretty heavy load there compared to the others. And they will greet you, verse 4, and give you two loaves of bread which you'll accept from their hand. So the guy with only three loaves of bread next to the guy carrying three goats gives away two-thirds of his bread. He'll hand this to you and you're to receive it from his hand. Sign 3, after that you shall go to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines, and there as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp and tambourine and flute and lyre before them prophesying. And the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Do we see Saul now leaving this place and kind of looking up into the sky for some direction? Of where do I go next? Where do I go now? No, he's just going home. This is the path he would go on. He wants to go home. He's choosing to do what he would choose to do. When the guy hands him two loaves of bread, he happily receives it. In fact, as God puts it, do what your hand finds to do. Here's a command though, verse 8, Then go down before me to Gilgal, Samuel says, and behold, I am coming to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. And when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave Saul another heart. And notice the next phrase in verse 9. And all these signs came to pass that how does God not know that the guy carrying two loaves might get really hungry and eat one of them how does God know that those three men would not get in a fight and one of them leaves the company how does he know these other two men will meet Saul the next day at exactly this particular place Clearly, God reigns sovereignly over all that comes to pass. He knows what is coming because He's written the script. He's ordained all that comes to pass. He knows where everyone will be when. It's just that here, He uncovers Samuel's ear 
and tells him what he could not otherwise know. All of these people in all of these events are not constrained against their will. They are simply following the circumstances of their life to do what they desire to do. Verse 10, when they came to Gibeon, and we're only told about one of the signs, though we are told in verse 9 that all of them came to pass. But when they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? You have to be kidding. And a man of the place answered, verse 12, Who is their father? That's a way of saying, Who is running this show? Who's in charge of this situation? This is really weird. Therefore it became a proverb. Is Saul also among the prophets? Some unlikely connection of people became proverbial. Yes, he is among the prophets. Believe it or not, it's an unbelievable circumstance, but it's true. And when he had finished prophesying as Samuel had prophesied, he came to the high place. His uncle said to him, verse 14, and to his servant, where did you go? And he said to seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found, but about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. He chose not to reveal it. He does not say to him, you won't believe all of these things that God did to me. I just levitated all around the earth today. And God took me from place to place and moved me around. I could feel His hand on the back of my collar and it was amazing what I was... He doesn't say that at all. But He goes back home. He takes the guidance that's been given to Him. Choosing and acting according to the circumstances. And God brings to Samuel a man who then goes home until God reveals the truth about him. I'd like to offer three conclusions that I believe flow out of this text in respect to the idea of God's governing providence. These conclusions may seem to apply differently to us. The first may seem rather academic, but I would encourage you, you must embrace this conclusion. And if you do not, then it is clear that your view of God as far as Scripture is concerned is twisted. You need an adjustment to your view of God. I think what we need to conclude about who God is and how He relates to us in this world leads to the conclusion, first of all, just from this text, and it's supported by all of Scripture, divine sovereignty and human freedom are fully compatible realities of life. This may seem, again, largely academic, but much hangs on this belief. As we continue forward in our study of divine providence, we will miss much if we do not come to this conclusion. To say it more simply, the river of history runs purple, not red or blue. Divine sovereignty and human freedom are fully compatible realities of life. It's not one or the other. Theologians who refer to this purple narrative, this idea that's expressed here, speak of this relationship as compatibilism. Human freedom and responsibility is compatible with the idea of God ruling sovereignly over all that comes to pass. It's not one or the other, it's both together. Now many people will say it must be one or the other. Either we are free or God is sovereign. We either fatalistically go through life as God has pre-programmed us as a robot, or we are absolutely free and God has no way of intervening. At least He has chosen to limit Himself to our decisions. But what we see beautifully worked out here in 1 Samuel 9 and 10 and that is that it is both. The river of history is neither red nor blue, it is purple. God does not limit His sovereign purposes to what man chooses. God does not stand back and say, well, I wonder what he or she is going to do next. 
He may anticipate what we're going to do next, but He does not intervene or in any way sovereignly direct what people choose to do. That is not what we see here. Nor do we see God violating the freedom of human beings, twisting their arm behind their back, so to speak, and forcing them to go where He sends them. We don't see that either. Divine sovereignty and human freedom are fully compatible realities. If you'll just allow that to stand there, I trust it will continue to make more and more sense as we go through further Scriptures together as God wills in the days ahead. Number two, God so orders the circumstances of life that people willingly choose as they do. That's a pregnant statement. We need to think about it carefully. In one sense of the term, we are entirely free as human beings to choose. But in another sense of the term, we are not entirely free to choose. When I come to the edge of a deep ravine that falls straight off in front of me, I'm not entirely free to jump off of it, am I? There are circumstances surrounding me that do not allow me to jump over the edge of the cliff. In fact, I'm a bit nervous at the edge of a precipice. I stand back a bit because the thought of falling over that edge is really frightening. And so the closer I come to the edge, the more concerned I become to not fall off. I am driven by certain fears and by certain circumstances. I can't fly. Now obviously some people do want to jump off the edge of the cliff. And they do. And that is because the thought of continuing to live life as it is is more painful than the thought of dying. They're confused. They're in rebellion against God indeed. But nonetheless, in that moment, they think staying back here in safety is worse and harder than jumping off this cliff and they jump to end their lives. But no one acts in an entirely arbitrary manner. You might think, I think I do sometimes, when I have a choice of ice cream at the ice cream stand, there's this and this, and I like them both, and I just go for one of them. But even as we come down to that simple decision, even that is not entirely arbitrary. There are circumstances that surround us that lead us to choose as we do. Now here's the question. Who is it that orders the circumstances? You don't have to live very long to realize we're not in control of the circumstances of our life. We strive to be in control of what we can be in control of. We strive to do things a certain way. And just like Saul, we lose things. You know that frustration, don't you? I'm not supposed to lose anything, but I do. And I'm frustrated with it. I'm angry with it. I can't find what I'm looking for. It may be a sock or it may be something really important, but I can't find it. Saul did not wake up one day saying, this would be a great day to lose some donkeys. Let's let them out of the cage. They got away and he couldn't find them and he's frustrated with that. We don't control the circumstances of our life, but God knows not only what we will choose to do under those circumstances, but what we would choose to do if the circumstances are different. Listen to what Jesus says. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Matthew 11.21 Jesus is saying here, if we take Him at face value, if the prophets, the miracles had been performed, in Tyre and Sidon that have been performed here in Galilee, those in Tyre and Sidon would have repented. But they did not. They were judged by God. Because that's not the circumstances they faced. Now creeping in here, let's be honest, comes the thought, I don't know if I like that God. 
I don't know if I want a God who ordains all that comes to pass, including the destruction of a city. By God's grace, we will work that out in far greater detail in the weeks ahead. But Jesus said, if this would have happened, they would have done this. And God orders the circumstances. So we are not free in the sense of being able to always act in a totally arbitrary way. We are compelled by the circumstances of life. We freely choose to do what God knows we will do and what He thus ordains that we will do if only by permitting us the freedom to choose as we do. Jeremiah 10 puts this well. I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. It is not in us to direct our steps. There are circumstances surrounding us we cannot control. God controls those circumstances and He knows exactly how we will respond under them. Saul will go look for a donkey. Samuel will anoint Saul, the first king of Israel. And God knows every circumstance and controls it. Now this leads more practically to the third conclusion. I should then orient my life toward glorifying God by choosing to rest and rejoice in His infinitely wise plan for my life, not striving to use God to get what I want out of life. That might seem like kind of a bold jump in conclusion. But think of it along these lines. Many times we can really be pursuing God because we want Him to change circumstances. Rather than pouring out our life with all the wisdom and energy and strength that we can muster to do what is right and pleasing in His sight and allowing Him to take care of the circumstances. My relationship with God is twisted and it is confused if I am seeing it to gain some other end. Whether that's positive or negative, positively it may be that I I want to pursue God in order to help my family thrive. That may be pure wickedness. I want to pursue God so that I can have an upstanding life and can be respectable and maybe just get along in a marriage, that may be wickedness. Negatively, we struggle with it all. Each one of us. God has ordered the circumstances of my life and I don't like them. I don't want to be single, and I am. I don't want to be childless, but I am. I don't want to have been betrayed. I don't like it that I've been deprived. I don't like it that I deal with this physical trial and weakness, this disease. I have this besetting sin that doesn't leave me alone. My life, in so many ways, is a failure. And if we're not careful as we deal with those negative circumstances in life, we can actually be relating to God hoping that He will just change the circumstances rather than relating to God as the author of the circumstances who has our good in view. Remember His sovereignty? He is absolutely free to act according to His purposes. He is absolutely powerful to direct all circumstances to the end for which He's designed them. And He is absolutely loving toward His people. He will never do anything other than glorify His name and love His people with an infinite love. And rather than relating to a God of sovereign grace in that way, we're relating to God hoping He'll fix our circumstances and change life into what I want it to be rather than what it is. When we focus on the glorious purposes of God, when we come to trust Him as the infinitely free, all-powerful, perfectly loving, abundantly good God that He in fact is, 
we can begin to rest and to rejoice that He has everything to do with everything and that He gives us abundant life in Christ. We say no to the frustrations. We say no to the anxieties. We say no to the depression and despair. We say no to the anger. We fight it. We root it out because we know that there is a sovereign God who has loved us in Christ that is ordering the circumstances of our life, expecting us to pour out our will in the right direction to labor for His cause. It may be true of you today that you are using God to get out of Him what you want, to change the circumstances of your life. And it's an evidence that you're not living in full awareness of who He is. This is a day to reorient your life to the God who is. The God who is as He has declared Himself in Scripture, the sovereign God who has given His Son to die in the place of you the sinner in order to rescue sinners from their sin in order to give us life in His resurrection power. As you reorient your life, you can come to the place where you give thanks to the God who has everything to do with everything and has come in the person of Christ to give us abundant life. May we come to Him in faith and in trust. Let's pray. Father, how weak are our views of who You are. How weak is our awareness of Your constant presence and care. We confess our sin. We confess our unrighteous ways. And pray that You will teach us to come to peace and rest and rejoicing in the circumstances of life. That we would not live our life trying to get out from under what You have designed, but that we would learn to live by active faith, striving to bring glory to Your name as we walk in obedience and trust. To live by faith and not by sight. If there is anyone who is separated from Christ today, I pray that You would bring them to a place of saving faith, and that You will use and bless and mature us as an assembly. We give You thanks for You, Father, our Sovereign. You are God who has loved us in Christ with an infinite love. Forgive us for doubting. Forgive us for seeking to use You for our own purposes. But teach us, God, Your greatness and Your goodness in Christ. And may we go from this place at peace. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.